What's up, y'all? Kevin Kuhn here from Athlete Factors. This is the Athlete Factors podcast, and my guest today is Dr. Jeremy Lenicky. How are we doing, sir? Doing well. Good morning. How are you? Very good. I'm very good. I'm glad to be here today. So yeah. Thanks for having me. No, for sure. Thank you for for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. So, um, it's not very often that I get to talk to someone to someone or, or with someone who's the actual content expert on a topic. So, um, I I think that you're you're pretty much the guy when it comes to blood flow restriction, right? I mean, that's. Well, I appreciate that. There's there's certainly lots of us, but yes, <laughs> we we do a lot of blood flow restriction. Yes, awesome. So, tell us a little bit about uh, your personal background. Um, did you play any sports growing up? Um, academically yeah. and and kind of professionally, what you're doing now? Sure. Um, <clears throat> I guess right now I'm I'm in my sixth year at the University of Mississippi. Uh, I'm an assistant professor there. Um, Early on in my life, I played a lot of different sports. Um, I was, you know, early on played basketball, baseball. Um, I wrestled. So um, basketball was good. Baseball, I was I was pretty good in the field, but you're, I'm, I was scared of the baseball uh, when in the batter's box. So uh, you're not going to make it very far in that sport. If you're scared <laughs> of fall. So I, I didn't last very long in that sport. Uh, I wrestled. That's my, that was my main sport. Um, gotcha. So I wrestled from, I guess, the age of five up through high school. Mm-hmm. So I came from a really good wrestling program. Our school is very well known for that and very good coaching. Um, so, yeah, I, I wrestled. Um, then I went to uh, did my undergrad at Southeast Missouri State. Um, I didn't I didn't do any sports in college. I wasn't I wasn't that good enough. Uh, or I wasn't that good enough. I wasn't good enough to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I majored in the, the degree was health management, uh, but it was exercise science. Um, there I did my internship at the University of Illinois. And that's mm-hmm. really where things kind of happened for me. Um, I had started reading the literature uh, halfway through my undergrad. Um, I had a professor, Dr. Jeremy Barnes, who would always put these old journals out on this table. So I was sit there and, and read them with a couple of other people um, and kind of got really into the research. Um, and I went to Illinois and I worked with Dr. Kim Huey um, and she was doing a lot of like animal research. Um, but that's really where I, I, I started to read a lot about blood flow restriction. Mm. Um, and when I was doing it, I had really just kind of thought that I was reading it incorrectly, that this doesn't seem like this makes sense. I probably just don't you know, understand what I'm reading, uh, because it didn't make sense <laughs> that you could restrict blood flow and something good would happen. Uh, but it was there that, you know, uh, that's where I met Lane Norton, Gabe Wilson, mm-hmm. a couple other people, Chris Foss, Wendy Rosso. So it was very good for me intellectually, uh, as well as personally. Um, but, you know, we were all talking about blood flow restriction. I saw a couple people, Lane, a couple other people trying it in the gym. Um, and I remember thinking, wow, I guess I was reading this correctly. So then I just started reading a lot about it. I did my internship project on that. Uh, but then I ended up coming back to Southeast Missouri State for my master's, um, where I did my master's in blood flow restriction. So that was uh, 2008 to 2010. And then I went to the University of Oklahoma uh, with Dr. Mike Benben, 
Um, and I did my PhD out there. Um, that's where I, I, I met Dr. Takashi Abe as well, who's uh, turned into a really good close friend of mine, uh, as well as colleague. So, yeah, I, I started off in sports. Um, wrestling is the main one. I did a little bit of bodybuilding in my undergrad master's. Very, very mediocre. Um, I did enjoy it. I did enjoy that sport. Um, I enjoy the rigor. Um, but it's just it wasn't in the cards for me. Um, I did a little powerlifting uh, in my, towards the end of my master's and then my PhD. Um, so I really enjoy that sport too, have a lot of appreciation for that. But again, mm-hmm. uh, my, my best day, I'm gonna be pretty average. You know, my, my deadlifts is okay for, for a, a gym goer. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, some of these guys are just ridiculously strong. So, you know, <laughs> for, for me, um, I, I kind of looked at things, especially for bo- powerlifting, not, not as much, but bodybuilding, you kind of got to be all in all the time. And for me, I'm like, you know, I, I on my very best day, um, I'm going to be very average. So that's the that's the best I can hope for. So I was like, you know, this this academic science thing, I think I might be a little bit better at. So mm. um, I kind of went and put a lot more of my eggs in that basket. Uh, I but, hear you. Yeah, certainly have kind of a, a, you know, spent a lot of time in wrestling, bodybuilding, powerlifting. I have appreciation for for really all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it can be really difficult if uh, genetics aren't, aren't on your side. So my, my last podcast guest has a thousand pound squat. Like there's no way I'd ever be able to do that. Like if, right. if we're going into a powerlifting meet, like I'm like, he's... He's raw benched like 490 or, or right. some something ridiculous like that. Like, there's no way I'm gonna be able to do that. So, um, I I hear that, man. <laughs> it's amazing too. So I, I had a I've had a, a lot of really good opportunities from uh, in the industry from you know Lane Norton. He put on a lot of camps back in the day, and he, mm-hmm. he gave me a lot of opportunities to to speak and see a lot of people. So a lot, you know, just being able to lift weights around some very strong men and women. To where you realize what strong actually looks like um and it's a lot different than what i look like <laughs> yeah but very very inspiring for sure for sure i went to a uh it was a squat and and deadlift camp that he put on here in dallas back in 2016 maybe and uh it was on my birthday so that was my my birthday present to myself it was him and uh lauren conlin and a few other people but like what a what a fun time for me yeah. anyway to <laughs> you know learn from one of the greats so yeah, certainly that's awesome so tell us a little bit about the basic premise behind blood flow restriction so you said earlier that you thought maybe you were reading into the into the research wrong so um, for some for like me I've read very little you know. I've, I've dipped my toe in. I've never even personally uh, tried it, but for anyone watching or listening who has zero experience with it, what's what's going on? Sure. <clears throat> well, it's a, it's important to realize when we talk about blood flow restriction that it's a very short-term stimulus. In other words, we are restricting blood flow to a limb, but it's for minutes, not for hours. So that's an important mm-hmm. distinction that needs to be made. Uh, we're also just partially restricting blood flow. So in other words, blood flow is still going into the muscle. There's just not a lot coming out. Uh, this is not a tourniquet. 
Correct. Right. <laughs> Some people use tourniquets, but they 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 don't clamp it down all the way. Gotcha. Um, so really, it, if we think about it with resistance exercise, it really seems like it makes the muscle work a lot harder than it normally would with very, very lightweight. Um, now, that's of interest to people who may be unable to lift heavy weights. They may not be interested in lifting heavy weights. They may you know, just need a, a little bit of a, a shift, a little bit of a break, or just to do something a little bit different. But it does... It does produce uh, changes in muscle size, changes in some of the vascular systems, very similar to that of high load exercise. It also increases strength, though usually not to the same magnitude uh, as high load exercise, obviously. Mm -hmm. So the, the interesting thing about blood flow restriction is I like to think about it in kind of three separate phases, with the third phase being the one that has the most amount of evidence. Uh, but there is some data that suggests that if we take a person who can't do anything at all and we apply a cuff to them and we inflate and deflate that that cuff that it's able to slow down muscle loss as well as maintain function in the face of a mobilization now it's very important to to point out that there's very little work on that and there's a couple studies that show that um and there may be a couple reasons for that one it may be a very difficult thing to study two you know I always wonder, it's like when you only have a couple studies for something, it's like, is it because other studies were done and they didn't find that? Uh, what's the reason for that? But mm -hmm. anyway, it, it, it may be something there, but not a lot of evidence. There's, there's a little bit more uh, when we combine it with low intensity aerobic exercise, like walking on a treadmill or cycling at a very, very slow, uh, slow speed. Mm -hmm. There's some indication that in some populations that may be able to uh, increase muscle size and strength over the same exercise without blood flow restriction. But hmm. again, that's probably going to be very population specific. I don't think I'm going to take someone like yourself or a lot of the listeners who are probably very active and have them walk very slowly and, and something good's going to happen. Right. Um, but the, the, the phase that has the most amount of evidence is when we combine it with low load resistance exercise. In other words, if we take someone and we have them lift at 20 to 30% of their max um, with blood flow restriction, it produces changes in muscle size and strength greater than that of the same exercise uh, without blood flow restriction, which obviously has a, a lot of uh, potential clinical ramifications. Gotcha. So um, we'll kind of jump forward to, to like my main question, because that sure. sets it up really nicely. Um, so do you think that blood flow restriction is probably more beneficial as as just a clinical uh, instrument, let's say, or a clinical modality, or do you think there is potential benefit for athletic populations? And that yeah. can this that's a tough one because the the spectrum of athletic populations can be like the powerlifter or the ultra ultra runner or the marathon runner. So today is actually um, the U S Olympic trials marathon. Yep. So do you think that someone who's competing today in the marathon could get benefit from, uh, blood flow restriction training? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, that's a very difficult question. I, <laughs> I, I have a, I have my own views on the utility of, of resistance training for sports performance anyway. Hmm. Um, so I, I have a lot of 
questions on whether there's a direct, you, you know, carryover regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that there's a lot of evidence that resistance training does seem to have that injury prevention component, which could indirectly really influence performance if you can't compete. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a tough one. I, I would say if, if people think there's some benefit to maintaining muscle size, uh, maybe some vascularization, um, and they think that may transfer over to their sport, then maybe uh, there's some utility to incorporating it. Um, it's not to say that they that's the only thing they should do or that's the only thing they can do and, or mm-hmm. that this is the best thing that they, they could possibly do, but it may be another tool that they can use if mm-hmm. they think that doing some form of resistance training uh, may be useful. Um, you know, I, I could see it if, if, if they're using it to try and induce some, some level of, you know, capillarization. Um, there's some evidence that that, that there, there's that, that might occur with blood flow restriction a little bit more than normal. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that's the rationale, I could see that, but then you'd have to, that, that's a, that's a big leap to go. Now I have this and because I have this, I will now be better at running. Mm. Um, but you know, I, you could connect those dots if you choose. Um, I think for, to get back to the question, I, I think clinically, I think it has probably the, the largest impact there, but that doesn't mean that other people couldn't use it if they, if they, if they want, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's plenty of lifters, uh, who have used it, uh, they've incorporated it into their training program as, as a way to say, um, let's try and maintain the stay or try to get a little bit more adaptation, but I don't have to have the stress of high loads on that day, right? Um, so uh, maybe then I can incorporate it. There's some people, professional athletes in the NBA, who they've incorporated into their, their workouts to try and unload a little bit because... Mm. They don't want to try and spend a lot of time recovering from the, the gym workout. They want to get ready to actually play on the court. So, yeah, it, it, it's a it's a very tough question. Powerlifting, um, if all you do is blood flow restriction and you're a powerlifter, you're going to lose, right? <laughs> I mean, you're not going to be competitive. But yeah. no, one, no one would do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there could be days where if you don't mentally have it, um, and maybe it's not mentally safe for you to try and lift – you know, a high percentage of your one RM, then maybe that day you unload it a little bit and and you try blood flow restriction because it'd still be a little bit much more challenging than normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not to say that you'd have to, to to get optimal gains or whatever people would say, uh, but it's another tool that could be used. But I, I definitely think clinically it's probably where it has the biggest uh, bang for the buck for sure. Gotcha. Because I've I've thought about this quite a bit, um, but it's probably the main reason that I haven't just like used it personally. Like the, the idea of it is, is so interesting to me, but I've never been like, you know what? I want to lift light today. (laughs) Even though, like you said, it's, it's not easy. Like it's not, you're not taking a day off. You're just reducing the percentage of the load, but that doesn't mean it's going to be, you know, yeah, a walk and, through the park, right? It it it's still difficult and it's still um, it's still demanding. Yeah, and I, I think if you're a bodybuilder, um, I, I think it w- would be re- very relevant. Mm-hmm. Uh, unload the joints a little bit, and mm-hmm. all they care about is hypertrophy. So um, they don't care if they get the if, if they get maximal strength gain with that. They'll get a little stronger, certainly, but not to the same degree as lifting heavy weights. Um, so that might be a way to, 
you know, and the way I would I would say if you were going to implement this is you'd want to replace something you're already doing, right? Mm -hmm. So a muscle doesn't just keep infinitely responding within a session. So if you've already obliterated your legs, your arms, and then you want to add more blood flow restriction, you're, you're probably not going to augment it any more than you already have. You're mm -hmm. probably just going to delay your recovery. But if you were going to implement this, I would say put that in place of something else for that day. Gotcha. So what is what is a typical uh, blood flow restriction training session look like? Like, let's say, um, is like, is there a huge difference between upper body and lower body? Like, uh, what, what's an example of what that looks like? Yeah. Um, typically, you know, especially in the research world, we're going to be doing a lot of single joint movements. Mm -hmm. Um, there is evidence that, you know, it also carries over to more complex movements, but, um, I would say the more the most traditional program is four sets of exercise. The first one being around 30 repetitions, and then the next three sets are, are 15 reps, with the load being around 20 or 30 percent of your max, um, with around 30 seconds to a minute rest in between each set, with a moderate mm -hmm. pressure, moderate to high pressure, um, where you will leave the blood flow restriction on the entire uh, exercise. So you 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 put it on, you would do your four sets, take it off. Um, but you know, from a, the, the, you can also just go to failure. So that would also, uh, be beneficial. Um, I think that in the research world, I've moved towards just having people exercise the task failure because it, it helps me try and equalize the programs between groups. I think in real life, if you're dealing with a client, sometimes having those goal repetitions is important. Mm -hmm. uh, because it, especially when you're using a more practical form of blood flow restriction, because you can use that as kind of a gauge for how much restriction is occurring. So meaning that if you're doing practical blood flow restriction, you have no idea how much pressure you're applying. Um, and if you know that you're using a very low load and you're getting five repetitions in the first set, you have, it's too tight. So mm -hmm. it can help you gauge to go, am I getting close to 30 in the first set? Am I getting close to 15 in the second? If I am, I'm probably right where I want to be. Of course, mm -hmm. you're not always going to get 15, right? Especially in the later sets, but it can give you kind of a gauge. And I, and I think that when you're training people in real life, um, meaning that you're training them long term, having some sort of goal to shoot for is, is oftentimes, uh, I think, a little bit better. Mm -hmm. uh, because you have time to, to try and figure people out. In, in the research world, it's better, I think, to just do as many repetitions as you can. That way I know everybody has done the most that they possibly can within that set, ideally mm -hmm. at least. Gotcha. So um, when you're – oh, man. sorry. I'm, I've got like 10 questions in my mind. So. Oh, you're good. <laughs> so – Question number one of 10. So do you recommend like a specific piece of equipment for, for blood flow restriction or, or can you kind of um, MacGyver it with equipment you have around the gym or around, you know, your garage or whatever? Like what's, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, I think, I don't think there's anything special about any one device. I think the, the benefit of a lot of the devices is that they can control the pressure. 
So that's good, right? And I think that that's very important in, in a clinical setting that you'd want to probably know what pressure you're applying to the person. I think for the average gym goer who has nothing wrong with them, who's who just wants to try and implement it, um, I think they could probably MacGyver it, um, uh, to use that phrasing. Um, I think that, you know, th there is literature, and we've done uh, some work on this with the knee wraps. So applying the knee wraps that you would use for around your uh, for lifting weights, for powerlifting, you can just apply them to the top of your leg or the top of your arm. Mm. Um, and there is some indication that that's useful for producing chronic change, even in trained individuals. Mm. Obviously, the big limitation there is I don't know what pressure I'm applying. Mm -hmm. um, I think with respect to muscle adaptations in a normal, healthy person, I think you have some wiggle room there where if you get it a little bit too light, a little bit too, too, too high, um, you're probably okay because, uh, the, the muscle adaptation is there across a wide range of pressures, hmm. vascular adaptations, probably on the higher side, but muscle, like muscle size, muscle strength, you have a wide area. So I think if you didn't get it just right in a normal, healthy person, probably okay. Right. I think in a clinical population, you might want to be a little bit more careful because mm. the higher the pressure you apply, you know, the higher blood pressure response you're probably going to have. Um, for normal people, that's not a problem. For some people, that could be a problem. So I think that it, knowing who you're applying it to probably would, would dictate that. But of course, there's a lot of there's a lot of devices on the market now. All of them marketed as this is the one. Um, from my experience, there isn't the one. Um, mm. To me, what what makes the most sense is applying the pressure relative to the size of the cup that you're using, um, as well as to the person you're applying it to. And if you're doing both of those, it probably doesn't matter too much uh, what cup you're using. There's there's some indication that even at a the same relative pressure, even accounting for that, maybe the wide cuff, maybe there's some downsides to that, but I I don't I don't think there's too many downsides. I I just don't think that there's that big of a difference between them. Gotcha. Um, so can you can you tell us like physiologically what's happening, like what is, what's going on? Yeah, good question. Um, if we think about you know those three phases again, the blood flow restriction by itself, how how would that help maintain muscle function and slow down muscle loss? I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> When we combine it with exercise, I think we can start using a little bit more terminology that's, that's a little bit more familiar, like mechanotransduction. But again, it's hard to know, right? I, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't think that it's different than normal exercise. I think that's working under similar mechanisms. Um, I think one of the things that happens with resistance exercise, um, I think when we apply that restriction, you know, we produce a lot of metabolites that you produce normally, but this time you're pulling them in the muscle. Um, I, I used to think that there would be something very special about that, that I pull these metabolites and that these metabolites in and of themselves are going to be important for starting a lot of these signaling cascades for growth. That might very well be the case, but there's just really no evidence that that's true. Hmm. So I've kind of shifted my thoughts on that to I think that the pooling of metabolites is very important. So in other words, you exercise, 
you know, you're producing a lot of those metabolites from the muscle just from producing energy. Normally they're flushed out. This time they're, you're, you have a, uh, a wrap or a cuff on your limb that's keeping them pulled in that limb. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that could happen is, is that that makes the muscle have to work a lot harder than it normally does, which means you recruit a lot more fibers than you normally would. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like the name of the game for large changes in muscle size is that you have to activate a large portion of the muscle for a sufficient duration of time. So I think the metabolites just help you do that. Um, so I think once you've activated the fiber and you've activated it for a sufficient duration of time, I think that all of the mechanisms beyond that are probably pretty similar. Um, uh, there's a really interesting study. It doesn't get cited a lot, um, which is unfortunate, uh, but it was a pretty cool study by Ellison and colleagues. Um, and really they looked at the, the acute gene expression response and when, when individuals were naive to exercise, they then trained them for, I want to say, 12 to 15 weeks. And they saw the, the baseline gene expression change. Then they did another acute bout. So they could see the acute gene expression bout to when they were already trained. So mm-hmm. they looked at the same people in three different scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, and they compared high-load exercise to low-load exercise with blood flow restriction. And they were looking at the gene expression changes. And what they found is... Anytime a gene changed or didn't change with high load exercise, you saw a very similar response with low load exercise and blood flow restriction. Mm-hmm. So, and if you look at what happens post exercise with the synthesis and the time course of, of things, it seems to me that it's very similar. In other words, as soon as, as long as you've activated the fiber, everything beyond that point uh, seems to be pretty similar to that of traditional exercise. Now, the, the, the mechanism of activating that fiber might be a little bit different, you know, how you fatigue is mm-hmm. and how you activate fibers with high load exercise is certainly probably different than that of low load exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that approach is different, but once you've activated it, I, I think the mechanisms are probably very similar. Gotcha. And is there, is there any additional benefit to like, once you've, you've gone through the training bout, you remove the cuff and now there's like this, you know, this, the flood wall is broken and now there's all this fresh oxygenated nutrient rich blood coursing into this area that has, you know, been essentially cut off for a yeah. while and all these metabolites are there. And then is there like a, like a flushing effect where now this fresh blood kind of cleans house and then delivers all these, you know, things that, that those muscles were craving during exercise? Like, is there any additional benefit to that? Or is it that kind of just, baked into the whole, um, to the whole process. Yeah. My guess is, is that it's baked into the total process, but I, I don't really know. Um, so you're kind of speaking at like this hyperemic response once you remove the cuff. Um, there was a study a long time ago that tried to, to mimic that with drugs to see if there was that hyperemic response and how that might've compared to uh, low load exercise and blood flow restriction. They, they, they concluded that it didn't seem like the hyperemic response was important for the change in synthesis. But if you look at the response pattern, the area under the curve is very much similar, but the, the, the immediately post is quite different. So I don't know that we know for sure. Um, I think I like the idea, um, but yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not really certain, to be honest, um, gotcha. whether or not that surge is, is doing something useful or not. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily like 
the the lack of blood being there it's kind of the lack of blood being there but really the exercise <laughs> well to see the chain to see a change in, in muscle size certainly it's the activation of those fibers so mm -hmm. and, and remember the blood is going into the limb it's just not a lot leaving so you gotcha. get that swelling response you get the the pulling of all those metabolites which i think is probably important for fatiguing some of those cross bridges perhaps causing more additional recruitment. But yeah, certainly a lot of unknowns, not only with blood flow restriction, but also, you know, high load exercise. I think the, I think that most people have come to the understanding that it's a local effect uh, with respect to exercise. Meaning that if I train my right arm with high load exercise or blood flow restriction, that that growth is going to happen on my right arm, but not my left arm. Now, strength can occur on the left arm, but but not growth. So that 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 seems to suggest that it's a very local response. So something is happening very locally. Um, what that is, I, I'm not sure. Now, now some people will point that there there's to the Matarame paper where you know you train one the, your lower body and it, and it augments growth in the upper body. I, I just have a hard time believing that. Mm -hmm. So is it? Is it uh, recommended to only do one limb at a time, or could you do like, would it be beneficial to to cuff, you know, both legs and then squat? Yeah, I, I think if you're if you if you're training someone, you'd probably just cuff both limbs. I think the a lot of times we do single leg uh, protocols because we do within subject designs, meaning that each limb gets their the right leg will do high load exercise. The left leg will do blood flow restriction. So I think in normal, uh, if you're training somebody, um, assuming they don't have an injury, yeah, I would just cuff both of them. Gotcha. Cool. So can you tell us a little bit about like the history of, of kind of where blood flow restriction came from? Yeah. Um, I think <clears throat> there's certainly people have been applying cuffs for a long time. Um, I, I would say the, the way we utilize it, um, with respect to applying the cuffs subocclusively, um, and to get the goals that we're trying to get has been around in the literature for probably about 20, a little over 20 years. Hmm. Um, the person who made that very popular, um, is, uh, Sato from Japan. Uh, he was a, he was a guy who kind of experimented around on himself, um, developed some cuffs, um, developed his own methodology for applying this, um, and then started, you know, having people research it. So I would say that, you know, it's hard to say that someone invented applying a cuff to the limb, mm -hmm. uh, because people have been using it for, for a variety of different reasons, but I would say that he, without question, made it very popular. Um, the, the first study in the literature showed up, um, in 1998. Uh, by Shinohara. Uh, it was published in the European Journal of Applied Physiology. And what they were interested in is if I exercise one limb with a low load and I do the same exercise with blood flow restriction on the other limb, what happens to strength? And they were only interested in strength. Mm -hmm. uh, and then what they found is that to the same exercise, if we added blood flow restriction, strength was greater. Hmm. So that was the first time it, it showed up in the literature with how we think of blood flow restriction. And mm -hmm. since that time, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, there's a lot of 
groups that have started to investigate this, doing a lot of good work. Um, there's a lot of molecular work that came out of uh, Blake Rasmussen's group at the University of Texas Medical Branch. Um, there's a lot of molecular work from uh, um, kind of like uh, Norway, kind of that area, uh, mm-hmm. Scandinavia. A lot of good work from the, from uh, from those groups. Um, even the United States right now, you have Summer Cook in New Hampshire. Um, you have a, a lot of groups in Brazil. So a lot of groups around have, have started to explore blood flow restriction. And it's certainly, if you look at the search or if you look at the, the publications on this topic, in the past three or four years, it's just exploded, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is good and bad um, <laughs> because it, it becomes, you know, you, you have just a lot, of, a lot of people doing a lot of different things. Um, and it's become a very popular in the, uh, kind of for everyday people, um, mm-hmm. which is both good and bad. So anytime something becomes very, very popular, you can expect that, you know, you're going to start getting case studies on people who have something ha- bad has happened to them. And is it the blood flow restriction? Is it something else? Mm-hmm. Is it just a one-off thing? Mm-hmm. So I, I anticipate a lot of that coming in the next few years. Uh, more so than what has happened. Yeah, I think, you know, maybe five years ago um, in the in the the gym setting, like uh, like corporate fitness, like it, it wasn't like nobody knew what it was like. And now, if I mean, you can walk into Gold's Gym right now and you might see somebody doing it or you might see 10 guys doing it um, and they're all doing it differently. And all of them attribute all of their you know, current success to this, like, this is what got them there. And it's like, uh-huh. that, that can be, that can be a, uh, a funny thing. Um, so, yeah, it, but it is interesting because it's like, you know, a lot of work was done in Japan for a long time. You know, you have, uh, the likes of Takashi Abe, um, Yoshinohara, you know, a lot of those, a lot of those groups were doing a lot of good work. Um, and, and just now it's becoming, you know, very popular. So uh, I would say the practical restriction, uh, we were the first to really propose that in the literature back in, I think, 2008, 2009, um, that the knee wraps might be something to, to think about. Um, and, you know, other independent groups have shown that that might be beneficial. But again, with the, the limitation that you don't know what pressure is being applied. But yeah, it's certainly increased in the past uh, few years, which is good. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, there's things that come with that. For sure. So, um, what are you what are you currently working on, uh, research-wise? Like, is it is it a lot of blood flow restriction stuff right now, or are you kind of branching out into other areas or interests of research? Yeah, we always do a little blood flow restriction work. Um, I think that we've also branched out into this these, these concepts of. Why do people get stronger? What, what is the role of muscle size? Or is there a role in that change in muscle size with strength? Um, that's a, a, a big interest of mine in the past few years. Um, I would say that we have a, we just finished a large study looking at that. I mean, that's published. It was also looking at kind of, are we actually able to identify individual responders in the, in the literature or in the, in the research studies? That's an interest. Um, but I would say, um, the big one that we've been doing outside of blood flow restriction is trying to better understand the role of the change in muscle size and what 
roll, if any, that plays with strength. Um, with respect to blood flow restriction, we've done a lot of stuff recently with discomfort, uh, different cuff methodology, as well as we're always, I always circle back to trying to figure out a way to better apply, you know, practical blood flow restriction. So um, we just finished a study trying to condition people to a pressure to see if, if conditioning them, training them to feel a certain way would allow them to, uh, when they come back later on, would they be able to identify that pressure? So mm-hmm. we're still working on that. Um, but that's kind of the, the, the big things that we're working on. Cool. Sweet. So, um, I think it was, it was a handful of years now ago when, um, I'd see every once in a while, some of your posts pop up on my Facebook feed. Um, and I think it was about, uh, waist trainers. Uh, so, I think it was the skinny wraps thing. Yes. Uh, probably yes. what it was. Yeah. <laughs> <Brutal>. So, <laughs> yeah. So tell us a little bit about, um, calling out bad science or, or confronting, you know, the industry when you see something that's potentially dangerous, like how important is it for, for those of us in the exercise, physiology, sport performance, uh, strength and conditioning industries, like all of these areas that, that have an, an overlapping knowledge base, how important is it, um, do you think for us to be able to call that out? Yeah. That's a, it's a very tough situation and my, my thoughts on it are ever changing. Um, obviously I think it's important that, you know, we make sure that we're conveying the appropriate knowledge, um, and questioning things that don't seem like they're appropriate. The, the, the skinny wraps thing came about because you know, it's very, it, it just seemed like a lot of claims that didn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and somebody had purchased them. Um, and some of the claims that were being made by some, not necessarily the company themselves, but some of the, uh, the, the people that were affiliated with it, mm-hmm. uh, were making certain claims that it was doing, like, if you apply it within this amount of time, you're going to see a decrease in fat or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the time, you know, as a graduate student, you're, you're very gung-ho. Um, and somebody had purchased that um, and were like, well, we could test this very easily. Um, so we did. Um, it obviously didn't do something immediately, right? So, yeah, w- we, you know, packaged that up. We, we started, you know, sending that out and it got a, a huge response. Um, so from, from a lot of different people. Um, uh, from a lot of different areas and from you, you start getting messages from from people that you don't want to be get messages from when you're a graduate student yeah. I, can, I can i can tell you that um so definitely definitely upset um a lot of a lot of people um mm-hmm. now i will say that you know if i had to do that over if i look back on 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 kind of how i did that um, being where I am now, I would, I would, you know, it, it was probably pretty obnoxious to be honest. Um, so I, I think that that's why I think the question is a little, is more complex than I, I think some people might think. So yeah. I think certain people respond to 
that kind of actions though. So if you look at a lot of the people in the industry who are calling that stuff out currently, um, the way they do it, I find very obnoxious. I, it turns, it's a big turnoff for me um, on how it's like, did you have any evidence for that? Do you have any evidence for that? It's like, and that's very much how I was. But I, I mm-hmm. think that certain people may need that because they respond very well to that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other people like myself now who I wouldn't respond very well to just seeing someone, you know, constantly do that to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, or anytime you see a skinny wrap, do you have any evidence? It's like after, you know, now I've got, you know, I would have approached it much differently. But, mm-hmm. but again, I think there's a lot of people who responded very favorably to that. Um, so I think you need multiple approaches because mm-hmm. I, I think it's tough to say this is the way that you need to approach this because people respond differently to different things at different points in their life. Um, I, I think it's also worth remembering that there's just going to be times where it doesn't matter what you say to someone. Um, it, they're going to say whatever they want to say. They're going to believe whatever they want to believe, regardless of why they believe it. Um, and, and, and to be fair, that should be perfectly fine. Right? I think the, the, the concern that people have is when they use that as a platform to convey you know, dangerous information. Mm-hmm. And it's just tough because it's like, is there a, is it important to, to question that and call that out? Yes. What's, what's the best way to do it? I think any way you do it, people are going to have something negative to say about it mm-hmm. uh, because it's, it, it, you're coming at it from a way that's different than, you know, how they would do it. Or it's just a different approach. Like, now, like I said, if, if, there, if it was something completely different um, and I, my, I was looking at posts that I would have made back then and I was looking at that now, I'd be like, come on, just, just relax a little bit. There's probably a better way to approach this. But, you know, but, but again, I think people respond very well to that. Um, yeah. So I love I it. it. Yeah. I, 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 I was like, it. heck yeah, man. <laughs> like he's calling out what he sees as a, as a major issue. And I was like, man, like the, uh, the courage that it must take to do that. Like I, I didn't do it, you know, like there weren't very many other people doing it. Like right around the same time, I remember, um, I think Brett Contreras did like a series called Grill the Guru where he was, he was kind of like, you know, challenging people to debate him on certain topics. And um, he'd write these long posts where he would just like 30 questions. You said this in this article, you know, right? where's your evidence? And so like, yeah, it's like, after like two or three of those, I was like, eh, I'm probably not going to read the next one he writes. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it just gets to where, you know, you got to be very careful with that kind of approach. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, like I said, it rubs a lot of people the wrong way and maybe rightfully so. Um, but, you know, again, I think you just need multiple different voices saying, saying that, but, but also realizing that there's just, there's just certain things that people are just going to think. Um, and it's just, that's just how it's going to be. Um, but I, I do think that it's, 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 it's important to have people on, on multiple platforms going, Hey, you know, what's the, uh, what's the rationale behind, you know, thinking this. Um, but I, but I think that often I, I had this idea that <clears throat> I was going to come out with this information and I was going to change people's minds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was going to really, you know, provide a lot of like, here's what you said. Here's something that just disputes that directly and that they're going to go, Hey, I appreciate that. But, 
Of course. I'm not going to say that anymore. Yeah, of course, <laughs> that's that's not going to happen. And, and, and then, <laughs> but then I wonder, it's like, is it is it because of the, they don't like the evidence or is it because of how I approach the whole situation? Where it's like, this guy is coming off, like, I, I don't think I ever came off like, like a, like a prick. Like I wasn't mm -hmm. cursing at them or anything. I thought I was being respectful, but mm -hmm. there's, you can be respectful and still be a little obnoxious. So I just wonder sometimes is, did I do myself a disservice to some of these people? Cause they're like this guy, you know, the, the way I was just approaching it. Mm -hmm. But again, I'm not saying that people who approach stuff like that, that they shouldn't do that. I think that at the time there's certain people who respond very well to that and that mm -hmm. might be good for getting them not to do that. But I don't know. It, it's just, it's just a complex uh, situation. Um, yeah. And it's not just that. I mean, there's so many things like, you know, now we have the, the diet wars where we have, you know, this exercise versus this exercise. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think the, the, the thing that I don't like, and it, and I don't know if I contributed to it at all, but it's like what we have now a lot in our industry is this, we have these silos of people who are like on a team and, mm -hmm. and it's like, we're, we're this team and we're attacking this team. And it's mm -hmm. like, there's, there's, there's no level of discussion or discourse. It's like, Oh, this came out from this team. We're just going to ignore that because it's from, it's from this team and not our team. It's just so weird to me. Yeah. Uh, it's very and I, yeah. And I don't know that if I contributed to that in a negative way. Um, but I'm I'm not about that approach anymore. Um, yeah. so, but it, I, yeah, it's a long convoluted answer. Yes. I think it's important <laughs> to, to, to probably have multiple ways to approach that, but mm -hmm. you know, I, I probably would have done it differently if I had to, to do it over with my current, uh, way of thinking. <laughs> well, I, I think that says a lot about you as a scientist, you know, that, that the way that you did things in the past isn't necessarily the way you would do it now. Like there's that, you know, I think like the way that I currently train my clients now is not the way that that I was training them previously because sure. hopefully I'm better at it now. Like right. hopefully my you know, my my baseline philosophy of of improving athletic performance hasn't changed, but the the exercise selection, the way that I program, the way that I interact with them during the session, like so a lot of things have changed, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, if you're doing everything the exact same way that you were five or 10 years ago, then it's probably not a good thing, right? And so, um, yeah, I, I had a podcast guest on a couple months ago, and and he was like, yeah, I, I hope I cringe at like in five years when I watch this episode again, I hope I cringe at my answers, not because they're wrong, but because I've improved on, sure. on everything. So I think, yeah, there's sometimes it's not, not a, you don't want to have just a simple answer. <laughs> right. Yeah. It shows that there's nuance. It, sh it shows that there's, <clears throat> you know, there's, yeah. there's some internal conflict where you're like, yeah, like maybe, like the intention was good, but sometimes the application isn't always, you know, appropriate, especially because of, you know, your experience has changed. Probably your opinion on some things has changed. Like, so I think it's a good answer for me, man. I yeah. get it. Yeah, appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I mean, 
it, it took me a long, a long time to get to that response. Mm, for sure. So, um, tell us a little bit about what you're currently uh, learning about, whether it's reading or listening to podcasts or uh, watching, you know, some videos or like whatever the yeah. case may be. Yeah, I, I think. I would say that one of the things I'm always working on is just, you know, reading up and, you know, on getting better at study design, you mm. know, different ways to approach that. Um, what are some, what are some better ways to do things, uh, especially analytically. Uh, so I'm, I'm always trying to read up on that, trying to learn new techniques, uh, make sure that what I'm currently using, I, 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 it makes the most sense. Is there problems with what we're doing? Um, you know, because you a lot of times you you you, you fall back on this is what I was taught in, in graduate school, mm-hmm. um, and you, and that's what you just revert back to. But you know, things change, or maybe not everything you you were taught was maybe the, always the best way to do it, um, and you just kind of learn with time. Um, so that's where I spend a lot of time, uh, honestly, is trying to better understand how to, you know, the study design aspects, um, how to best analyze the data in the most appropriate way possible. Um, and I think that that's professionally where I spend a lot of time. Personally, I, I, I always read like, I'm always reading some sort of like history of science, something related to that. Mm. Um, I like to to better understand why do we think certain things? Uh, what are the reasons why? Um, and I. I guess that carries over in my professional world as well, but I'm always interested in, you know, we have these current paradigms for how we operate in exercise physiology or just physiology. And uh, I think a lot of times we think they're, they're really grounded in a lot of really um, solid science. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've come to learn that that's not always the case. Um, so sometimes I often, when something seems a little bit counter to, to what, our lab is producing and people uh, keep trying to go against it. I'm, I'm, I'm always curious. Why, why do people think this in the first place? Mm. So we spend a lot of time reading old, old, old books. Um, and, you know, old exercise physiology books to see when things shifted and, and, when, and what made them shift. So that's of interest to me. Um, I also just like to read popular um, science books Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to usually they have to have some little bit historical flair to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find stuff like that kind of inspiring, but that, that, that's really mostly what I what I do outside of the the laboratory. Gotcha. Yeah, related to that. Um, yeah, we assume that the foundation that everything we have now is is solid, but there's times where like if you're not going back to to actively check that, like oh this this house is not built on a solid foundation. Like there's a lot of gaps here. And, but oftentimes we just assume like, no, like we wouldn't have this answer now if we didn't have, you know, going back, like some solid work done. So I think that's, it's always good to check back to, you know, how did we get here? Instead right. of just assuming that, oh, well, you know, no, no large jumps or assumptions were ever made to get to this point like sometimes that happens yeah so and then related to uh to like study design man like that 
that whole topic probably gave me the most anxiety in grad school. Like, I think I just couldn't wrap my head around it. Like, um, like I understand, like, the goal is to, you're trying to limit as many variables as possible, right? You're trying to, like, make sure that what you're studying is, or, or what you're measuring is actually, you know, what you're studying, I guess. Right. Like, and then in statistics class like i i did not understand like okay so this tool measures this and this tool measures this i that, oh yeah not a fan not a fan <laughs> i did okay in the class but like oof. right as soon as we were done i was like well i'm gonna free up some space in my brain for useful information now <laughs> yeah no I, I understand it's uh, a lot of it's not intuitive for me either um but I, I think it's, especially in my role, it's, it's quite important that I keep trying to develop that. Um, and, you know, there's a, that's what I use social media for as well. You kind of follow some people, kind of see the, how are they doing things? What, what, what are they kind of questioning? What are their concerns about? And you're like, do I do those things? Um, and I, I think always trying to make sure you're doing things the best possible way. Of yeah. course, there's always going to be multiple opinions like this or versus this. So mm -hmm. you have to make some decisions yourself. But yeah, I think it's always good to be trying to develop in that in that world. Gotcha. And I'm sure, you know, because you take, you know, your job and your profession seriously, like, does that help you as a peer reviewer um, improve the quality of other people's research? Um, in principle or in theory, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that, yeah, I think a lot of times um, and not always because sometimes, you know, they just don't make those changes and that's mm -hmm. okay. I mean, there's difference of opinion. So mm -hmm. even if I really think something, it doesn't necessarily mean that they absolutely need to be doing that. But mm -hmm. yeah, I definitely think so. Um, and because you, you get, especially when you peer review a lot, you get a kind of a better idea for, um drawing out study designs and making sure like does this actually answer the question that they think it does mm -hmm. does this uh analysis appropriate for their actual study purpose so you get you get a lot better at doing those kind of things and, and i'm still learning myself um every year mm -hmm. um but it's it, it helps when you you're surrounded by really good people to be honest um mm -hmm. i think that we have a lot of good people in our department um, and my, my students are phenomenal. So I've been, that's one of the things that I've just been extremely lucky with since day one, I've had just really good graduate students. Mm. So when you have that good of graduate students who are not, have no qualms about kind of attacking your ideas in a professional way, obviously, right. but just sit around and try and think about the best possible way to do this. Um, it really helps if you let it, you know, it will really help you develop even as a faculty member mm -hmm. um and you know just having i've been very lucky in that in that respect because i i know a lot of people not at Ole miss but outside who they don't always have the best luck with graduate students mm -hmm. but um it must be something in the water down here i don't know but as i've been i've been extremely lucky to have really good thinkers uh who have set up some things where you're like wow i would have not even considered that mm -hmm. um so it's been it's been very good for us that's awesome. So uh, if people want to learn more about uh, blood flow restriction and, and 
other research that you're conducting? Like, how can people follow your work and and uh, maybe reach out and ask you questions? Yeah, I'm on I'm on Facebook, Instagram, um, and Twitter. Uh, Twitter is probably the best way to communicate with me. That's at JP Linicky. Um, that's where I'm most interactive. Um, Instagram, I, I, I struggle with that, to be honest. Um, I'll, I'll upload and I always keep us updated on what we're doing on Instagram, but I, I, I struggle with the, the response. I don't, I don't, I don't quite get it. Twitter is much better for me. Facebook, I, I'm on and that it's possible to communicate with me through there. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the best bet is, is, is Twitter. Cool. Awesome. What's your, what are all your Twitter, Instagram handles? Yeah. Twitter and Instagram is at J P L O E and then E K E. So just J P and then my last name. Um, awesome. and Facebook is just, there's only one Jeremy Lenneke, right? <laughs> for, for, <laughs> probably for better. Um, <laughs> makes but, things easy. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So to conclude, what is a, a piece of advice or a quote or um, some useful information that you think anyone watching or listening could benefit from? Yeah. Hmm. I guess what we talked about earlier is, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's worth, if someone has a different opinion of you that are different opinion than you do, um, or there's a difference of opinion in the field, um, and you think that there's something to what you're saying, it's always worth asking, why do people think this? So mm -hmm. if someone disagrees with you, why do they think that? Uh, and then trying to better understand that position. Um, or like for me, I don't think that the, there's a lot of evidence to, to say that the change in muscle size contributes to the change in muscle strength with exercise. I don't think there's any evidence to indicate that, but it's worth asking why does why do most people think this, mm -hmm. right? And then try and follow that back, because um, if you don't do that, then there's no communication, there's no dialogue, um, and you don't know what there there could be a very good reason why people think that. So, I think that's the biggest one. I think that we have to move away from this. As you know, you started off kind of off the air about you know this is not a gotcha podcast. There's mm -hmm. too much of that. Um, there's too much of this. Gotcha. You, you, you misspoke. You, you said one thing wrong. So everything that you say from here on out doesn't make any sense. And mm -hmm. then it's like they'll screenshot it and go, look at this idiot. Look at he, he got this wrong. And then it's like, you know, it's just it doesn't it's just so ridiculous. Um, people are complex. People make mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's an important thing to consider. And I think it's also worth considering why do people think the way they do? Um, and understanding that will help you better understand your position as well as probably theirs. Mm -hmm. uh, so not everybody has to take that advice, but it, it, it's a good place to start, I think. Awesome. No, I, I'm very guilty of, of, you know, assuming that my intentions are always best and assuming that other people's intentions are always the worst. And uh, so it's a very valuable reminder that like, hey, you know, just because someone has a different opinion than me on a topic doesn't mean that the reason that they have that opinion is because they're stupid. Like right. yeah. <laughs> they might have a really good reason and I don't know that reason. So, um, and, and, and sometimes it, you know, it, it takes 
time to think about things, you know, and I think that's the, you know, sometimes people want your immediate opinion about something. You see it on the news all the time and then people can bash them later on. Mm-hmm. It's like, they they said this, it's like, they, did, they had zero time to to think about this complex issue that you just asked them. So yeah. they you asked them for their comment, they gave it immediately. Uh, I'm sure it would have been different had they had some time to, to, to think about it. So yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. I think just trying to, to keep in mind that um, there might be a reason why they think that. Um, and maybe it's a good reason, maybe it's not. And let's say it's not a good reason. Okay, it doesn't mean you have to just keep coming at this person. You just have a difference of opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's, if, it's, if it's stupid, then okay, p- people believe that kind of stuff all the time, as we talked about earlier. Yeah. So just, I think, realizing that you're not going to convert everybody in the world. Um, and if you, if you try to do that, you're just going to live an exhausting life. If every day you go on, it's just a battle on social media. It's a, it's a, it's a bizarre existence. Yeah, you're going to um, burn out quick. You're, gonna, yeah. you're, <laughs> you're not going to enjoy life, that's for sure. Yeah, so. yeah. No, and I, it, it, yeah, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. And uh, yeah, so thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. Um, and again, I, I think that a lot of these ideas I, I talk about um, have been cultivated by just, you know, working with really good students. So I think that it's, it, it, I always want to convey that I'm not just sitting on this chair, then I'm the one that has all the, I created all of this. This is uh, a lot of work from a lot of good students that have mm-hmm. helped me think a little bit what I would think better. Uh, everybody, some people would disagree with that, uh, but <laughs> I'm actually thinking worse these days, but um, <laughs> I, I think I'm thinking better. And I think a lot of it has to do with just being surrounded by really good people every single day. But yeah, that's, uh, again, thanks for having me on. For sure. No, I think that's super important. You've got to you got to have people around you who who are willing to challenge you and who are willing to, um, you know, to celebrate with you when you have good news and, you know, mourn with you when you have bad news. But, you know, keep you accountable and call you out when when, you know, there's either an issue with your thinking or or with the application. I think that's super, super important. We all need that. So, yeah, certainly. Awesome. Well, Yeah, I can't wait to have you on again in the future so we can continue this conversation and talk about some more amazing things in in uh, both research world and and, you know, specifically with blood flow restriction. So, yeah, anytime, man. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for watching and listening. And as always, stay tuned for next week's episode. Adios.